He was only 27 years old. He was way ahead of his peer in many respects. He excelled academically, legally, professionally. Um, We would say today he would be an Ivy Leaguer. And it would be very difficult to find someone that would match his competency, someone his equal. He was very clear on his mission, his goals, his, his, his life. Uh, there was no equivocation. He didn't need a business plan. He didn't need some process or some a retreat to figure out what he was going to do with his life. This was a man on a mission, academically, professionally, legally, who had his life mapped out before him. He's traveling to Syria with arrest warrants. And these arrest warrants will not merely allow him to sequester people and take them back to Jerusalem. These arrest warrants were nothing less than a death certificate because he had the authority to see capital punishment carried out under the arrest process. On the way to Syria, he hears a voice. Why are you persecuting me? His travelers hear it as well. They don't see anyone, but he does, and he's struck blind. And for three days, he'll neither take food nor water. And on the third day... um, A man of Syria is tapped on the shoulder. And by the way, it's the same Syria we're reading and hearing about today in the news. A man is tapped on the shoulder to go to this prisoner of blindness and tell him something. And after a little persuasion, the man Ananias agrees. And he goes and he lays his hands on him and says, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you has sent me to you that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And those simple words, something falls from Saul of Tarsus' eyes, and he sees, and he is now a believer in Jesus Christ. There is no extremity, there's no way to explain it. A 180 falls short. His life is completely changed at that moment. He was going in one direction, and there's no possible way to measure it. Now he's going completely the opposite direction. In fact, Luke records, he began immediately to proclaim that Jesus, Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. So in one moment, a man who had the ability to arrest and see prosecuted those who are following the way, he does a 180, he's a changed man. And for the next 33 years, approximately 32, 33 years, that's all he does. Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, had one purpose in life, one purpose in life, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You compare that with our business models, our education models, our church plans. You, you compare it to any model, health care plans, those of you in, in the health professions, those of you in law. You compare it to the Japanese 100-year model. You compare it to any plan on earth, and it's kind of striking that Paul had one thing to do for 33 years, and he'll die a martyr doing it. We, we glibly called them the missionary journeys. Every time he got on a boat, every time he walked to a new city, every time he went to a new culture and went to a new synagogue, he was there to do one thing, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lloyd introduced the book of 1 Corinthians last week. If you, did not, if you weren't here, you know you can always watch or listen online. It's always available. How many of you utilize podcasts? Put your hand really high. Okay, that should be 95% of you in this room. 
A podcast is a, it's, here's, here's the word, free. Everybody likes free. It's free. Podcasts are free. And there are incredible resources out there that you can listen to on any device you own, even an old clunky desktop computer. You can listen to, and if you don't know how to set up a podcast, ask your teenager or your grandchild. They can do it in about seven minutes, and you will be the happiest person in your home. Uh, but you can listen to all these things on podcasts, online. You can watch if you're so inclined. But he gave a great overview, a quick overview. Uh, I like what he did in the word corrective. When I teach Corinthians, I say, put the word corrective on the front page of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. These are corrective letters which always makes me scratch my head when I'm driving these country roads and find these so-and-so uh, First Corinthian church of. And I go, what were they thinking? What were they thinking? We're the worst church in town. Come here. <laughs> we have uh, sons sleeping with their stepmothers. We have all sorts of fun things. Come and join us. Be a member here. I mean, it's just bizarre why you put that in their name. But then upon reflection, maybe they got it right. Because aren't we all? A bunch of limping sinners calling ourselves followers of Jesus. Corinth is a corrective letter. He spent 18 months there, and after he left, within four to five years, the whole thing goes to pot, which precipitates him writing this corrective letter. Now, a quick review of Lloyd's message. If you haven't opened your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15, please do that, 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul, one of the reasons uh, some people, like me, like to look at Pauline literature, he's, he's, we call it didactic. He's very line by line. Paul is a left-brainer, if you want to use it that way. So the right-brainers, kind of, you may or may not like it. Us left-brainers, we love Paul because he explains an argument. He uses for this reason. He uses so that, a subjunctive clause, so he explains things, therefores. It's like he gives you this outline, and for those of us who like to know what's the point, where are you going, what are you saying, what's the bottom line, Paul's our guy. We love what he, the way he writes. <laughs> One left-brainer in the room, yeah. You and me, Sid, you and me. Now, if you look at verse 1, I want you to notice the word which. I'm going to read verses 1, 2, and 3. Now, I made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Each one of those is a message in itself, which I preached. I communicated this to you. I told you about this. Remember, he's correcting them. Which you received. You believed it. You embraced me. When I taught you this, you accepted it. You welcomed it. Which you stand. The benchmark we've talked about many times. You have a benchmark in your life. You hammer it in the ground. This is when I trusted Christ. This is when I believed, when I embraced, when I accepted that teaching. By which you stand and then which you are saved and being sanctified. And that's a fascinating uh, teaching that we're not only positionally saved, but we're progressively being sanctified by this same gospel. We're positionally saved when you trust in Christ and Christ alone, but you are progressively being sanctified. None of us has got this all together. As one of my professor mentors often asked, if you were never more ready from, for heaven the moment you were saved, why are you still here? Why does God got us on the green earth? Paul had one thing to do, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And then Lloyd introduced this phrase of first importance, the primacy. This is the most important thing. It's the first in the list, we might say. Some of you remember the Green Bay Packers, at least a story, if not watching it. 1961, they uh, lost uh, a miserable defeat in the fourth quarter to the Philadelphia Eagles for the national championship. The next season, they're gathered back in the locker room with legendary coach Vince Lombardi. In his book, Don Meredith writes, uh, When Pride Still Mattered, what a great title, When Pride Still Mattered, The Life of Vince Lombardi, he tells the story of the five most famous words in foot NFL history. Um, they think they're going to pick up where they left off and make their game better, and Lombardi walks in the room and he says, Gentlemen, and then his right hand holding a football, This is a football. We're not starting where we left off last season. We're starting from the most basic fundamental there is. And he worked on blocking and tackling until they were weary of it. Max McKee was one of the Packers Pro Bowl players, a star in the day. And during the preseason training, he joked to Coach, Coach, could you slow down a little? We're covering the basics. We're covering the basics. That's all we're going to do. Six months later, they went to a victory over the Giants, 37-0, to and won the national championship they'd lost the year before. Men and women, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. It is the most important thing in our lives. It is more important than our economy. It's more important than our health care. It's more important than our marriages. It's more important than our children. It's more important than your grandchildren, newsflash. It's more important than who's in the White House. It's more important than who's elected, who's impeached, who's imprisoned. It's more important than your dementia, than your cancer, than your wife's cancer, than your Alzheimer's, than someone you love's health challenges. It's more important than an impossible two-year-old. It's more important than that terrible teen. This is the gospel. All of life must flow from a foundation of understanding what this gospel is and what it means. And that's why Paul says it's of first importance by which at 27 years of age, he'll spend the next 33 years doing one thing, proclaiming that gospel. The word is euangelion, Lloyd intimated at it last week. E-U is the prefix of a word stuck on to angelos. E-U, we know the word eulogy, good words at a funeral. Euphonium, a nice-sounding instrument. Euphemism, a nice spin of the word. E-U, good. Angelos sounds like what? Angels. An angel is a messenger. And actually, the word is twofold. It's not only good message, but it's a good messenger as well. The gospel, euangelion, can mean lots of things. In fact, before it becomes sort of Christianized in the New Testament, we need to understand a little bit of the history. Uh, Gerhard Kittel has written the famous 10-volume New Testament dictionary on all the Greek terms, and it's, it's the unequaled study of every word in the New Testament and how it's used in classic Greek, ancient Greek, and then what's called Koine Greek, our New Testament, the way it's written. Let me just read you a part of this very long entry. The messenger appeared, raises his right hand in greeting, and calls out with a loud voice in Greek, kare nikomen, or rejoice, we've won. By his appearance, it's already known that he brings good news. When you see him coming, you know already it's good news because you see the way he's riding or the way he's walking. 
His face shines. His spear is decked with laurel. His head is crowned. He swings a branch of palms. Joy fills the city. Garlands round the temples. Politicians and private reports are also called euangelia. But the euangelion is generally associated with victory in a battle. So as it comes into Christian use, that's how the word was understood for the common, let's say the person in America who hears the word good news. It's a good report, but it becomes distinctly Christian the way we understand and use the word in evangelical euangelian words. To sum up the gospel in the simplest way I can, I would simply say the gospel is the words and works of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the words and works of Jesus Christ. We see the gospel used, and Lloyd talked about this as an adverb and an adjective, everything gospel-centric, gospel this, gospel that. And some of that's understood. Some of it's a bit over the top. But what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15, what we're studying for these few weeks are the words and works of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the words and works of Jesus Christ. What did he accomplish? In Acts 20, when Paul's leaving the Ephesian elders to go on a journey, he pleads with them. It's a very endearing, tearful scene. They're crying on the beach, and he warns them, savage wolves will come up from within your own. And I extrapolate from that, Paul's warning them, the gospel, there's always going to be creep against the gospel. I, I have a theory, can't prove it, but I've seen it for 35 years. Institutions never drift to the conservative Colleges, Bible colleges, seminaries, denominations, churches, altruistic Christian ministries, they never drift conservative. They always drift liberal. And there's never a way to correct it short of what we call reformation. And reformation leaves lots of bodies on the side of the road. Reformation's ugly and hard. A friend of mine works at one of the Ivy League schools. He's uh, a Christian missionary, so to speak, on a campus. And I toured the campus years ago. We went to these halls, B.B. Warfield's library, all this kind of stuff. And he said, Michael, we have everything on this campus except Jesus. And it was started as a fundamental Bible-believing seminary in its lineage. In fact, all of your Ivy League schools were seminaries. Did you know that? To train men to be ministers. And now a little cry, a little different than they were started. Institutions like churches never drift toward truth. Fellowship one day could become liberal. Who knows? We've got to center on the gospel. The most important thing is to understand the foundation stone of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at what it accomplishes. Verses 3 to 5. For I delivered to you as of first importance, primacy, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve. We'll stop there for now. One thing we like about Paul is the way he used, I like of him, he uses verbs. I delivered what I received. Just very quickly, it's the same thing we read in the Lord's table. I'm giving to you what I received. What, what is he saying? I didn't make this up. God revealed this to me. The New Testament word is mystery, musterion. The mystery isn't like we like to solve mysteries or read a good mystery or go to a mystery movie. 
erase that idea. A mystery simply means something we didn't know. We didn't know this until God revealed it. And God revealed to the apostles many things. The apostolic teaching is what you hold in your New Testament. So Paul's saying, God gave this to me and I'm delivering it to you. He handed it to me and I'm handing it to you. That's all he's saying. And then we have these four verbs. Died, buried, raised, appeared. Every English Bible that I checked, ESV, TNIV, all of them use the word that. You'll see it like a little yellow flag. Look again at your Bible. That he was buried. That he was raised. That he appeared. That he died. Four times the word that. They're like little yellow flags in the margin. So when you study your Bible, especially Pauline literature, look for repetitions. Look for things like that. Let's look at each one of these in brief. Number one, that Christ died for our sins. That Christ died for our sins. This is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Big words. It means he died in our place, on our behalf, instead of us. Say it with me. In our place, on our behalf, instead of us. One more time. In our place, on our behalf, instead of us. Last time. In our place, on our behalf, instead of us. When Christ dies on Calvary, he's dying in my place, in your place. He's dying instead of me up there. He's dying on behalf of us. That's substitutionary atonement. It's a very important doctrine. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. Substitutionary atonement. He's pierced through. This is at least 700 years before Christ comes on the scene. Isaiah's writing this. He was crushed for our iniquities. Substitutionary atonement. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings, or the king's stripes, were healed. Three phrases where prophet Isaiah is saying, the, the suffering Savior will come as a substitutionary atonement for you. One of hundreds of verses we could look at to teach it. Substitutionary atonement. He died for our sins. Now, there are medical theories running around, and I'm not a doctor. Well, I'm the kind of doctor that can't help anybody. I'm not, I'm, I'm not a real doctor. Um, but there are theories that are going around that say we all carry cancer. And it's just our immune system that can either keep it at bay or it breaks out in all forms. And cancer is a metastasizing complex disease because it's not like something they can identify and cure because it always changes in layman's language. It's always different. And so that's why there's all these treatments and drugs called OKT3 because they're just trying to, it's like an ever-moving target trying to kill cancer. It's very difficult to control. Analogy. We were born with spiritual cancer called sin. We're all sinners. You were born depraved. If you don't believe me that children are depraved, go to the learning center and spend a little time with the 18 to 24-month-olds. Even your granddaughter or grandson is a depraved little urchin. They are depraved children. When they arch their back when you're trying to change a diaper, depravity is coming out. When they're difficult and ornery for no reason, that's a mere reflection of your sin nature in them. Now they're innocent by the world. They're not exposed to evil innocent, but they're depraved. We're all depraved. We all have spiritual cancer. There's one cure for spiritual cancer. One. Christ substitutionary atonement, period. You can try everything MD Anderson has to offer spiritually. It won't solve spiritual cancer. There's only one cure for it, Christ dying for our sins. He dies, say it with me, in our place, on our behalf, instead of us. Secondly, he's buried, that he was buried. The burial is important because it confirms he's dead. 
He didn't swoon. He wasn't unconscious. He wasn't a spirit being. He wasn't some ephemeral spirit that wasn't really a corporal human being. He was fully God, fully man, but he's able to die, and the burial confirms his death. Fascinating to me, all four gospel writers, think about this word as we're going through the series. We call them gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Why? Because of the good news. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are also good messengers. They're bringing a good piece of news to us. And what is the record of the gospels? The words and works of Jesus Christ. Not that hard. But we have to keep reminding ourselves because we forget, at least I do. He's buried. All four gospel writers mention Joseph of Arimathea. All four mention the tomb. All four mention the linen. All four mention the bodily preparations of Christ's death. All four are talking about this death and burial. Critics, liberal scholars attack the Gospels because of the different features they have. Uh, some leave out things, some add things. They fail to observe the most common sense approach. You've got four sets of eyes, the Holy Spirit using four personalities to record four stories that are the same subject matter but in a different style and a different emphasis. Authors had different points. Matthew wrote to the Jew, for example, to the kingdom of God. On they go. But all four Gospels talk about the literal burial of Jesus Christ. The burial confirms his death. Number one, that he died. Number two, that he was buried. Number three, that he was raised. The confirmation of the resurrection. The resurrection arguably is the most important part of the Gospel. For if he is not raised from the dead, we have a false system. We have a false religion. It's, Paul says we're foolish. David Lowry writes to reject the literal bodily resurrection is to eviscerate to destroy the gospel take away the resurrection you got just an ism or an ology take away the resurrection um, go do what you want to do my three umbrellas money sex and power we all all our sin we gravitate towards one or all those different times money sex and power lust of the flesh lust of the eye boastful pride of life money sex and power if this isn't true, go, go, go for it, baby. All the money, sex, and power you can find. Because afterwards, you're food for worms. If the gospel is not the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we're fools, Paul will say. The resurrection makes the eternal difference. Remember Christopher Hitchens, the uh, very renowned atheist, uh, brilliant man. He passed away in 2011. He spent about 20 years of his life trying to eradicate the notion of religion. And he is a very articulate man. Um, he was interviewed by a Unitarian minister named Marilyn Sewell, uh, not quite a year before he died. Just a brief part of the interview. Miss Sewell, the religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take stories from scripture literally i don't believe in the doctrine of the atonement of jesus that he died for our sins for example do you make a distinction between the fundamentalist faith and being a liberal christian now that's a complicated question what she's saying is i don't buy those bible believing people that believe in things like substitutionary atonement or literal death i don't buy that i'm a liberal christian so when you're attacking all of us and saying we're stupid to believe in religions. Do you have a problem with me? See your question? That's what she's asking. Listen to Hitchens' answer. 
I would say that if you don't believe in Jesus of Nazareth, that he was the Christ and Messiah, and that he rose from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. He understood the gospel perfectly. And he's upbraiding, undressing, you might say, this liberal Christian Unitarian who's saying, well, I don't believe that fundamentalist nonsense that the Bible's true, substitutionary atonement, he died for our sins, efficacious grace. I don't believe that nonsense. So, so are we okay? Now listen to the follow-up, long interview, but here's cut to the chase. Hitchens says, Christianity, remember, is really founded by St. Paul, not by Jesus. Paul says clearly, if it is not true that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then we Christians are of all people most unhappy. Now listen carefully. If none of that is true, as you seem to say it isn't, you don't believe in that literal stuff. If none of that's true, as you seem to say it isn't, then I have no quarrel with you. The guy was thinking brilliant. He understood the gospel, but he didn't embrace it. That Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised. Finally, Fourth, that he appeared, eyewitness accounts, that he appeared. Paul then gives six eyewitness accounts. Let's look at them. Pick it up again in verse 4. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Some have fallen asleep, a euphemism for died. Then he appeared to James, that's the half-brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born. It's a very grotesque Greek phrase, a miscarriage, a th- an aborted fetus, we might say. I was, wasn't fit. He appeared to me also. There are no less than six. He mentions Peter, the apostles without Thomas, the, more than 500, which to me is the coup de grace. That he appears to more than 500 people at one time. That's pretty dang convincing. If he shows up in a room this size and we all say, I saw him, I saw him, I saw him, that's pretty hard to disbelieve so what is he saying tie this back to the phrase according to the scriptures which we won't develop in detail but you'll notice it in verse three christ died for our sins according to the scriptures verse four he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures what he's saying is that the prophecies that were written long before jesus was born predicted this was going to happen Two, in case in point, Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. Most of you are very familiar with those texts. If you're not, you should study them sometime. We typically read them leading up to Easter. We call Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 the the rabbi's torture chamber. Because when you read the specificity of the crucifixion in those texts, 700 years before Christ is born, the Jews say that was a personification of the people of Israel that endured those horrors but the crown of thorns i mean it's outlined perfectly the crucifixion scene is outlined in those two chapters and many other places so that's what was according to the scripture now there's many more but just for time those are two that are valuable according to the scripture so what do we have here paul's saying the appearance has been proved by according to the scripture and eyewitness accounts So we've got literature that's written hundreds of years before Christ was ever born or came on the scene, and we've got a long list of eyewitness accounts. You know, today in a courtroom, in a criminal case, the single most valuable piece of testimony are eyewitness accounts. Still today. I saw it. I was there. I can describe it. 
it still maintains the best testification, the way to testify. John Stott writes, if he had not been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God, nor made them sons of God. That is a $25 quote. Listen again. If he had not been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them sons of God. Fully God, fully man. Four verbs. He died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. And he appeared. Say it with me. He died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. And he appeared. One more time. He died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. Died fully human. That's Dot's point. He had to be fully human to die. Buried. Confirm he really was dead. Raised, confirmed he's really God. Appeared, confirmed to witnesses that it really happened. That is the sum of the gospel in this section of Paul's teaching. Do you understand what he's saying? John uh, records many things that are simple, that I love the way he writes them of Jesus' record. He says, Jesus is speaking, for this is the will of my Father. Pay attention. This is God's will for me, Jesus says, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. God's will is for anyone, when they see the person and work of Jesus Christ, is that they'll believe him. And by believing in him, they will have eternal life. That is the summation of Jesus' words. John, 1 John 5.13, these things have been written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you know that 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 you know without any equivocation that when you die you will be in the presence of Jesus Christ? And if not, that's why this time is so important to review. This is the gospel. Anything else we do is immaterial. Paul's going to die proclaiming, he's going to be martyred proclaiming the gospel. He's going to be in prison writing the prison epistles to proclaim the gospel. He's going to go all the way to Rome to speak to Caesar, God willing. That's his mission, to proclaim the gospel. In the final analysis, you're a free agent. You don't stand on your parents, your husband, your wife, your grandparents, your good works. If you're involved in a good school, if you're a good kid or a good adult, you don't stand on any of that. You stand as a free agent before a holy God. There's only one way you're getting into heaven. That you've put your trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. I've been doing this church stuff for 35 years and counting now. And I have never been more concerned than I am today. If people that go to church don't have a clue why they're going to church. Middle Tennessee, we've been here almost seven years. I'm still figuring it out. I still don't know what's going on. I don't think I'll ever understand the music industry. Blanton, you've got to help me. I'll never understand the music industry. I don't get it. I'm sorry for all you right-brainers. Forgive me. I love you. I just don't understand you. 
I ask you the same of me. But I will tell you, the elders at Fellowship and Rob and Bill and Lloyd and I are very concerned. And if you come here, you know who Christ is. I may never understand your world. You may not understand my world. I may not understand your medical world, your financial world, your teaching world. He's an attorney, a practice, health care provider, whatever you are, school teacher. I may not understand your world. And I'm not, and I'm not asking you to understand mine. I'm asking you to understand the gospel. Do you know what this is about? If Fellowship Bible Church moves from this gospel, leave the church immediately. We're not trying to be the biggest or the best or the brightest. We're trying to clearly teach the scripture. And that's what we'll die doing. I'll fight for that till the day they fire me. Paul spent 33 years doing one thing. Talk about tenacity. Talk about a man on a mission proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. All roads lead somewhere, but only one leads to Jesus. And the world in Middle Tennessee, as well as in our country and around the world, has gotten really sloppy with what the gospel is. Be true to yourself. It's a lie. Do what's true to you. It's insanity. Be true to yourself. All that type of teaching. Well, I've studied all the world religions, and I like this one because of this lunacy you just made yourself god we're aligning ourselves to god we're not defining god in our own image think about every world religious system they're a system of do's and don'ts you can redact it down they're a system of do's and don'ts do these things don't do these things if you do the things you're not supposed to do do some more things you're supposed to do and that equilibrium maybe it'll tip just on the good side when you get to wherever nirvana erewhon heaven paradise whatever you want to call it the next level the next stage you know, you're going to get there and you've done just enough good to actualize and go to heaven wherever you're going to go. That's essentially world religions. Christianity, biblical Christianity, is the only, quote, religion where the God-man comes and loves you and dies in your place on your behalf instead of you to make a way for you. And all you got to do is believe. It's the greatest business transaction ever offered in all of human history. And people resist it for all the most brilliant reasons. I can never believe in a God who, fill in the blank. We just made God in our own image. And we're puny little humans trying to find the infinite. Here's the bottom line. He loves you. He died for you. I got four kids. I love them all. I love them like crazy. Doesn't mean I always like them. But I love them. Got an incredible wife. Can't believe she's put up with me 35 years. Love her like crazy. You may think me pretentious. That's okay. I would die for any of them in a second without thinking. Any parent in this room gets that. I would die for my kid in a second. One of our children, when she was very young, had to undergo some medical tests when she was about two. And I had to restrain her while they did this test to her. And she was screaming her lungs out, Daddy, make him stop. Daddy, make him stop. Daddy, make him stop. I would have crawled on that table and taken that test a thousand times to prevent my daughter from having to endure that pain. And you get it. Some of you have children who've been sick. Actually, I wanted to take that thing and wrap around the woman's neck and choke her for hurting my daughter. <laughs> Can't do that. Even my children who exasperate me, I would still die for them. I'm not some super great Christian. I love them. 
and I would die for them. And every parent and grandparent in the room would say, amen, right? Now, I like a lot of you. I love some of you. I wouldn't give any of my children for you. I might die for you, but I would not give you one of my kids. The greatest demonstration of love God could ever exemplify was the only begotten monogenes, one-of-a-kind, unique son, better than every grandchild ever born, better than every great-grandchild ever born, the perfect God-man, born to die that we might live. He is given by a father who loves him. God so loved the world that he sent his monogenes, his only begotten son, that whoever, what, believes in him, what, might not, but have the most well-known verse in the Bible. It's the gospel. He loves you. Doesn't care what you've done. Well, he cares, but he's not mad at what you've done. He's mad at sin. He hates sin. He abhors sin. But he poured all that wrath on Jesus Christ when he was crucified on Calvary because he loves you and me. That's the gospel. The words and the works of Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. And then he appeared. Say him again. Died for our sins. Was buried. Raised. And appeared. Do you believe it? Stand with me and let's read these three verses. Read with me. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. That's the gospel. May the gospel go with you. Have a great week. God bless you.